This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hey, Ashley. Hi, Candy. I'm super excited about our episode today because we have a guest speaker. Yes, we do. And we've been obsessed with this case for about a month or so now, right? Uh, probably longer. Probably longer. In- including field trips to go visit. That's true. Sunny. Yes. So, yes. We sweated so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it's here, the interview. So guys, we alluded to this obviously last week, but we are very excited to have Miss Angelo here with us today to talk about her her book, Dark Highway, and of course, the cases that it covers, the murder cases that took place in Oldham and Shelby County, Kentucky. But before we lead you into that... Yes, before we get into the interview, we have to say, if you've not yet heard mine and Candy's episode about the setup, then you need to go back and listen to part one because it's really going to give you some context for this interview. Otherwise, you're probably going to be really lost about who all these people are and what happened. So take a little pause, go back, listen to part one. I promise that we will be here when you get back. And then all that's left is to say, let's get into the interview with Anne. Well, good morning, Anne. We are so excited to have this chance to talk with you about this fascinating case and the work you put into it, researching and writing all about it. So first of all, thank you for being here. I appreciate the invitation. It's very good to be with you this morning. And so we wanted to start by asking, what was it about this particular case that captivated you to the point that you spent six years researching and writing it? That's a very good question. (laughs) First of all, it's a mystery. There's, I mean, it really is a mystery. It's a whodunit. Mm -hmm. And it kind of pulls you into it. It's got strong characters. You want to know more about them. What floored me initially was that I had never heard of this case before. In 2007, an article came out in a local magazine called Shelby County Life. It commemorated the 70th anniversary of the slaying of General Denhard on Main Street in Shelbyville. And I thought, I have never heard this story. And I'm a history buff. I was an undergrad history major uh, before I went to law school. So I just was amazed at the story. I must have stored it away in my brain because at that time I had no real interest in going forward and researching it, even though I was intrigued. So fast forward to September of 2009 and you had another state politician shoot his ex-fiance. That was Steve Nunn and Amanda Ross. Really tragic. And uh, it brought back this story and I just had to know more about it. 
Mm-hmm. So I started digging, simply could not get out of it. It's kind of like quicksand. Once you put your foot in, you're going in all the way. <laughs> and your research process, could you share just a bit about the different avenues you had to follow in order to research this case? Well, uh, what I found uh, was that documents were everywhere. And uh, you could just simply go with newspaper articles, but a lot of times they weren't necessarily accurate. You had to be careful. So what I was really searching for was a transcript Mm -hmm. because as an attorney, that's very important. And it took about two years to find a copy of the transcript. So I researched, I went to all the historical societies. You had Oldham County, Henry County, Shelby County. I had uh, microfilm, especially of the old Oldham County paper, which was fascinating. I would spend Saturdays with my characters going back through the years, catching up with them in 1929 to see what they were up to. Um, And then comparing that with newspaper articles. But once I got my hands on a transcript, Mm. that was the gold mine. Yeah. Well, one of the parts that was fascinating to me was, you know, the theme for our our month is in our own backyards. And so feeling Mm -hmm. like this is something very connected to us too. Every Mm -hmm. time you would talk about places I'd been or even names I recognize, it just absolutely fascinated me. But Mm -hmm. when you shared that you actually got to talk to the descendants of both of the parties, that to me was just powerful. So could you share a little bit about that? I'm going to ask you two different questions. The first of which is you, one of the comments you made was that it was Verna's family that was more reluctant to speak publicly about the case, while Henry's family, Henry Denhart's family, tended to be more matter of fact, but were unsure of whether or not he was guilty or innocent. Was that what you expected to find from them? Let's start with Denhart's family first. I think that they hoped I might find something mm. that would indicate he had been railroaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. That's what I believe they were hoping for. And let me say this about my research. I, I was determined to stand in the middle. I was not going to assume, well, he's guilty. So mm-hmm. let's just go from here and see what we can find out. It was always my objective to be like a judge. I was mm-hmm. going to stand in the middle and see where the evidence took me. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess this research offered the best opportunity to see if there was the possibility that he had been railroaded. Mm-hmm. With Verna's family, I learned a really valuable lesson. I think I was a little naive on this. I learned a valuable lesson in how a violent crime can affect a family for generations. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stop with the uh, family, the immediate family that was involved at the time and is now dead. The effects of that carry on down through the years. There were some family members who just didn't want the book written. They were gracious about it, but they let me know. There were others who were much more open to it. Over the years, speaking with them, working with them, I, you know, became attached to some of them for sure. Loved Verna's granddaughters. Uh, (laughs) Got to see some of her personal belongings, Verna's personal belongings. I 
overall, both sides were good to work with. Mm -hmm. So without breaking any confidences, is there anything else you could share about those conversations with family members? Anything, any interesting experiences or anything besides you said you got to see some of the artifacts, you know, any um, details you want to go into a little bit more? I will tell you this. The most amazing artifact I saw and held in my hands was Verna's hair. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it had been cut. The family who showed it to me did not know when it had been cut. And I wondered if that had been done before she was buried. Mm -hmm. That's just a conjecture. Mm-hmm. But um, that was the most amazing thing I saw. Mm-hmm. And then I found that engagement ring. You know, that notorious engagement. Yes. <sighs> that is the most beautiful ring I have ever seen. Now, the family doesn't own it. Someone else owns that. It took a long time to track it down. It is the most beautiful ring I've ever seen. Wow. I actually had it on my hand, which oh. was quite a <laughs> Yes. Oh my goodness. My follow-up question is if the Denhart family was interested in you doing this book to hope that it would prove that he got railroaded, how did they react when it was finished? Were they kind of disappointed or did they understand and said, well, the evidence is the evidence? I think that there was a grudging understanding that there wasn't anything I could find. Mm-hmm. And I had turned it all over, you know, as much as I could mm-hmm. and given him a fair shot. Yeah. And I'm willing to bet that I'm the first person that gave him a fair shot since John Perry. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Okay, let's let's move on to talk about Verna Gar Taylor. You made a point mm-hmm. in your introduction of sharing your respect for Verna, commenting mm-hmm. in news coverage Verna became merely a victim whose death led to Denhart's fall, yet Verna and Henry were remarkable unusual people. So as somebody who spent years delving deeply into this woman's life and reading her personal communications and learning what her closest friends and family had to say about her, how have you come to regard her, Verna, now? What kind of person do you feel like she was? Verna, as I said, was a very unusual for her time. Mm-hmm. She raised, after her husband died in the early 30s, she raised her two daughters. She ran a business, operated a business full-time. That was a community laundry in LaGrange. She was busy with church groups if the door to the church was open, Verna was in there. She was a religious person. I came across a couple of uh, times a story about how someone broke into her house and she chased them out in the yard. (laughs) And also, if you uh, notice in the book, she was the one who was the take charge person that night, even an hour before she died. She was the one on the highway making decisions about what to do about the car that had broken down. Mm-hmm. So I would describe her as a take charge kind of person too. I think she's somebody we would love to have known. Mm-hmm. More than one time I heard her described as a real sweetheart. That's kind of a term of the era. She was a real sweetheart. I heard that quite a just so our, our listeners could get a visual, who would you, if you were casting this as a movie, is there any modern actress or person that you would go visualize this person? That's who Verna was like. 
You know, when I see, is it Kiera Knightley? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think of Verna. Okay. Tall, slender, dark hair, the features. That's who I think of. That's really interesting. I like that. That kind of helps give a visual. And a strong woman, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as we shared in our previous episode, Verna's life ended the evening of November 6, 1936, when her body was found in a ditch off Highway 22 near George Baker's farm, dead Mm -hmm. from gunshot. Her fiancé, Henry Denhart, claimed she'd shot her herself after becoming increasingly despondent over the course of their day trip yet the grand jury felt there was sufficient evidence to charge Denhart with willful murder in the book you agree with the decision to label Verner's death a murder what yes. were the key pieces of evidence that convinced you this was a case of murder versus suicide the gun is at the top of the list the way it was found well some of that too but the fact i found the exact gun at the kentucky historical society now from the transcript i knew the make model serial number on it so i went to them and they had military weapons there that uh, pistol is from world war one I. I can't begin to tell you how heavy it is mm-hmm. how big and cumbersome it feels in your hands mm-hmm. And um, I handled it, moved it around, and I thought, wow. Plus, you know, she was found with a glove in her hand. Mm -hmm. So she would have been handling this huge gun with one hand to kill herself. Mm -hmm. So I'll never forget, I placed this gun into the hands of my model, handed it to her. And her first words were, there's no way, Mm -hmm. which I had already thought. Yeah, um, when you handle that gun, you understand how difficult it would be for a woman to shoot herself with it, to turn it on herself. So that was at the top of my list. The circumstantial evidence here is very strong. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, that's what they had to go with in 1936 because forensics was pretty primitive. But you had a guy, a guy out on the road there who waited for the battery to be put in the car before he went up the road to check in the direction his fiance had walked and yeah. he had heard a gunshot. Yeah. So you have a guy who's supposed to be a big, brave military man just waiting around while a battery's put in the car. Mm. He referred to her in the past tense. Mm -hmm. She was the finest woman I ever knew. Mm-hmm. When her body was found, he never went down to see if she could possibly be alive. One of the first thing he asked, he asks is, well, is the ring still there? Mm-hmm. And, oh, that was pretty callous. Mm-hmm. So the circumstantial evidence here was uh, pretty strong. Now, of course, it was Denhard at the, at the scene that gave his attorneys the direction they were going to have to go. They had no choice but to go with suicide because at the scene he said the words well it was a suicide and at that point he said well her daughters were giving her a hard time about our engagement which is pretty callous Mm -hmm. was the gun i don't remember this was the gun brought into the courtroom yes did they have somebody like you just said your model held it and said there's no way did they not have did they not have the jurors hold it and go can you imagine a woman of or did they not think to do that do you think the only women involved in this were the witnesses and there were very few female witnesses i can't see anything in the transcript where they had a woman verna's size like i had 
someone who was her exact height, weight, mm-hmm. handle this gun. Mm-hmm. I can't see that they had anyone there do that. That seems like such a missed opportunity, you know. Mm-hmm. There were several missed opportunities. <laughs> yeah. And, and these were smart guys. These were very smart, all on both sides, very sharp, smart attorneys. But there's just some things looking from our modern lens. We're like, oh, if only you'd had, if only you'd done this. But, you know. They did. They did the best they could. I think they did. There are things that are not in the trial that should be in the trial. Mm -hmm. There are questions that were not asked that should have been asked. Mm -hmm. And you're left to wonder, why is this? Mm -hmm. It's it's, even the trial to some extent became a mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really? Well, my question is going to piggyback on something you just mentioned, Anne, which was Henry Denhart's unbelievably cold and callous behavior. I know we've said this several times. Our listeners will have heard us say this a lot, but really guys, you all need to read Anne's book because she does such a wonderful job of bringing you into the story and you feel like you're just watching it all unfold. But that was something as a reader that struck me, different things he would say, different things he would do. And a lot of people who were involved with this situation, they made a lot of it, whether it was witnesses, whether it was the jury, whomever it may be. So I'm going to ask you first, how do you interpret his callous behavior? And what is your opinion as to how much sway that type of behavior should have on a jury's opinion of guilt versus innocence? I think we have to look at yesterday versus today. Mm -hmm. Today, the circumstantial evidence would be second to the forensic evidence. Mm -hmm. Back then, we did not have the good forensic evidence. It was primitive. So the circumstantial evidence was probably more to the top. They put more weight on his actions out there. And, and you know, they were not good. They really were not good, the things he said. Mm-hmm. And he was afraid of Verna's brothers from that first night. Yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. He was afraid they were going to come after him. Rightly so. Rightly so. Mm-hmm. So the, that day, the day of Verna's death, she and Henry were on their way home from their day trip. It was a journey from LaGrange to Louisville and back when the tragedy took mm-hmm. place. As the investigators tried to retrace a couple steps that day, they found several gaps in the timeline and stops that were pretty hard to explain. So mm-hmm. what do you think, Anne, are the most significant gaps or uncertainties about the events of Verna and Henry's day together? You know, that's one of the very frustrating things mm-hmm. we, we'll never know is why it took them so long to get back to Oldham County mm-hmm. and then to drive into uh, Henry County. For no reason. For no apparent reason. Now, he said, oh, she wanted to drive out that road, which today is 146. Mm-hmm. She wanted to drive out there because she found it relaxing. I can tell you, I've driven it at night in November purposely. It's not relaxing no, even today. Not and at the all. deer, the deer are running at that time. Mm-hmm. So you have to be doubly cautious. So I wonder whether they were arguing on the way home, whether mm-hmm. they would stop and argue. I know he was drinking. Mm-hmm. It could have been that she was trying to give him time to sober up. Mm-hmm. She was driving. 
So she was trying to give him time to sober up. I don't know. It's possible mm -hmm. that this was an argument that lasted from uh, Louisville all the way out there. Mm -hmm. Well, and to piggyback on that, you have one person who supposedly has a headache that has kept her participating in activities that she was committed to do that day. Yes. And yes. the other person who is constantly saying, I'm sick, I'm sick. Why would you not be getting home as fast <laughs> as you could? Right. Yes, this headache has just, Candy knows, I have talked to her more about this headache. Uh -huh. It has plagued me because she had, well, I don't know if she asked him to. Part of me wonders if Denhart just took it upon himself to call, I think it was Bess Lee, is that right? Her friend. And said, oh, she has a headache. She can't come. But she goes to the bank. And although she has a headache, she's still in a good mood. What that, mm, that was my next question is, what okay. do you, what's your thinking on this headache business? Okay. Now you remember Verna was going to have a flu installed in the chimney at her business on Saturday yes. morning. Yes. And she was going to purchase that flu on Friday afternoon mm -hmm. when she needed to go to the bank. She yes. always made her deposits on Friday afternoon. I've always thought that maybe too much was made out of the bridge luncheon. Okay. Because that was going to last all afternoon. And she didn't and need Verna, to do it. Verna had places to go and things to do. Okay. So I, I think it is a possibility. She said, oh, please just tell him I've got a headache. Okay. Because she was a busy woman. Moment. She didn't have time to sit around all afternoon and play bridge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One, since we're talking about the headache, again, Ashley's right. She and I have had so many conversations we have. about the yeah. headache. Yeah. One of the points that, that was brought out was she would complain of headaches other times outside of this particular experience. Yeah. And a wondering for me is for a woman of that time, things seemed to be going a little sour with Henry before this day ever came along. If you wanted somebody to leave, what are your excuses? I have a headache. Or if you needed to get out of something, I have a headache. Like, I half wonder if that's just not, if it wasn't just her fallback excuse when she mm -hmm. needed to politely decline or get herself out of a situation. Mm -hmm. That's possible. Now, I know she was troubled with headaches. I know she had gone to a doctor in Lowell. Okay. But it could be that that was a good fallback excuse rather than say, you know, I don't have time to come to your luncheon this afternoon. It might be easier to say, well, I have a headache and I'm not quite into it. Especially if you have a history of headaches and they know that you're plagued yeah. with them. It would be, an, it, it could be a combination of both of those things. She has a history of headaches. People know she suffers. So if she, I'm having one of my headaches, they'll, oh, okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Could be. So this is a question that has also, what's the word, intrigued me. I, I really am excited to hear what you say about this. In your epilogue, you stated that Chester Wolfuck and her relationship with, Verna's relationship with Chester was, quote, the key to her murder. But we never really got to hear anything, you know, in terms of hard evidence as to what their relationship was. There was a lot of speculation. So what do you believe? to be the truth about Verna's relationship with Chester. Well, let me slide on the beginning here before I get into it by saying it doesn't really matter whether there was a relationship, but what matters is that Henry Denhart believed there was a relationship. Uh, yes, yes. And I found out 
through that memorandum that showed up at the last minute that I talk about, mm -hmm. he absolutely did believe there was a relationship. Mm -hmm. And he gave instances of things that looked odd to him, of ways she acted toward Chester that made him very suspicious. And then the night before she dies, he meets up with them in downtown LaGrange in the laundry delivery truck. Mm -hmm. Now, before I found that memorandum, I had a really strong feeling and had alluded to a relationship, a possible relationship, or to him thinking that there was one. But I later found out, yeah, he did indeed believe there was a relationship. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, too, Chester was the only witness who could rebut Henry Denhart, but he was never called as a witness. As a matter of fact, the prosecution hid him away mm -hmm. over law office. Now, why? That's mm -hmm. the question. Mm -hmm. So something like that makes me believe that perhaps there could have been a relationship. That is so suspicious. Uh, you know, an attorney will never put someone in the witness chair that he or she thinks might hurt their case. Right. With something Chester was going to say that might hurt the case. Mm -hmm. What it was, I don't know. Mm -hmm. We'll never know. Yeah. Did Chester ever speak about any of this to anyone? No. Mm. No. And that's another thing that's not suspicious, but just kind of telling, because he could have come out at any time on his own and said, look, no, we didn't. It wasn't. But he didn't come out unless he was just very private. Himself. He was very private. From what I understand, he was very quiet, kind of withdrawn, shy, mm -hmm. not someone who would be talking. You know, back then, people just didn't talk about stuff mm -hmm. the way they do now. Mm -hmm. Today, it's social media. You air your dirty laundry. Everything's out there. But I ran into this when I was researching, too. There were descendants who absolutely did not know what had happened mm -hmm. because family did not speak of things. Mm. And that was true in the Denhart family too. The descendants really didn't know what had happened. Interesting. That was I was actually going to ask if any of Verna's children or grandchildren had ever had any thoughts about that relationship, but is that something that you asked and they never I think they would have they were they would have been surprised. Okay. Okay, because Verna uh, came across as very religious straight laced but it's things from the trial that make mm -hmm. me wonder yeah mm -hmm. Chester should have been called as a witness. He was the only one who could rebut yeah. Dan's testimony. Yes. Yeah. Even if they were in a relationship, that doesn't mean that it was anything improper. They could have been boyfriend, girlfriend and not be doing anything improper. So neither one was married. And yeah. Uh, yeah and he, but he was 14 years younger. And I think that in small town LaGrange, that might have been scandalous with her okay. having two daughters. And, you know, it was just a different time in a different place. Today, we would say, so what? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't remember when it happened, but she could have said, well, Agatha Christie just married someone 14 years younger. That's around the same time. <laughs> She could have been like, if Agatha can do it, I can do it. This may not be, This I may be going too far down the rabbit trail, but just one quick question, just for my sure. own personal interest. In a small town trial, as they would have been having at this time, would there be a possibility simply by putting Chester on the stand that you would have been opening the possibility of a relationship, even if there were not? Like, would that have been a fear? Like, if we put him on the stand, this idea is now out there, and now people are going to think <laughs> it, even if his testimony 
testimony is that absolutely nothing ever happened. Would that be something they would have considered? Yes. Now, here's another way that it was a different time and it was a different place. I think that there was an effort to protect the reputation of a victim then, yeah. whereas now everything would come out mm. and, and be publicized. But I think that that weighed in with the way Ken Solving handled the case, mm-hmm. uh, that there was a protection of the victim and the victim's family. As an aside, I just looked it up. Agatha married Max in 1930. So we would have precedent. <laughs> she, could, <laughs> she would have precedent. <laughs> Why don't we pause here for just a second, take a quick break, and we'll be back with Anne in just a few. In honor of season three, we are having a merch sale. Now through the end of September, you can purchase your very own Scandalwater t-shirt for the discount price of $15 and also receive a free sticker. Who doesn't love free stickers? Shipping and handling are not included and only available within the continental US. Email us at scandalwaterpodcast at gmail.com with your order today. Cheers. Let's talk about some more surprises. On page 65 of your book, you say there are two instances when Henry was genuinely surprised. When he saw the dried bloodstains on his overcoat and when he learned the paraffin test was positive. So why do you think that he was surprised? You know, at the time, I I thought, well, this is interesting that he would be surprised like this. The more I got into it, the more I thought, well, I might understand this now. Mm -hmm. If he had an accomplice, he would be surprised. Right. Mm -hmm. That's all I think, too. So this, for our listeners, this is what led you to come up with an accomplice theory. That was one of the things that led you to come up with that? Mm, one of many things. Let's let's go to the trial transcript for a minute. To me, the most important testimony along those lines is the testimony of the shepherds. The young couple who was driving from his mother's house back home to Pleasureville, I think, they passed George Baker's house. Henry Denhart is standing by the car, and they don't see Verna on the road at all. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm was she? Mm-hmm. So that is very mysterious to me. Then they turn the corner. Not long after they turn the corner, the shot goes off. Mm. So how did Henry Denhard or uh, Harry Houdini yeah. <laughs> get, get up the road in that short a time? Yeah. And a few pictures of him, he's portly, he's red faced and get back to the car without any mud on his shoes or his and he's most likely drunk. He'd been drinking. Yeah. So he wouldn't have been maybe quite as fleet of foot. Mm-hmm. And at his weight and everything, I just don't see how the guy could have done it. Mm-hmm. That Those kind of things led me into wondering, could somebody else have helped him out here? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Totally switching gears. But actually, this is something that you referenced earlier. The fact Mm -hmm. that during this time frame, it was very different as to how women were regarded and Mm -hmm. allowed to participate in our legal system. In the bibliography, in the um, notes that you included at the end of the book, you offered your opinion that Judge Marshall's, you called it patronizing ban on women Mm -hmm. jurors was problematic, quote, because he publicly expressed a personal opinion against women as jurors. It is interesting to speculate whether the outcome of the trial would have been different with several female jurors. 
just, this is an opinion question. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, how might the inclusion of female jurors have affected the trial? Judge Marshall was very old school. There's no (laughs) doubt about that. I think that female jurors would have been less likely to fall for that whole scenario of a woman having the vapors because a young man said he loved her. Right. They may have laughed at that. I think that the male juries of the time would have been more susceptible to that weaker sex argument. Mm-hmm. And a woman on the jury or more more women on the jury might have evened that out. And they would have said, wait a minute, this woman is running a business. She right. knows how handle employees. She's a take charge kind of person. Do you think she's going to shoot herself because some young man says he loves her? But also they probably would have noticed how heavy the gun was. Just being females, they would have looked at that gun and gone, there's no way I can hold this. They may even said, let me have that gun. I want to hold that gun just a minute because it looks so big to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas the male jurors would have looked at it and viewed it normally Mm -hmm. as a normal kind of pistol. Mm -hmm. While Henry Denhart was waiting for his new trial to start, a lawsuit was filed against him for the death of Patricia Wilson, which obviously infuriated Henry and led him to file a countersuit. For our listeners, I found this fascinating because uh-huh. it led to the, the what is it, the lady in blue yes. um, legend at the hotel. So that whole piece just absolutely fascinated me. But what is your opinion as to Henry's innocence or guilt in that case against Patricia Wilson? I don't believe he had anything to do with that. Really? Really. Okay. Uh, Let me explain just a little further about those lawsuits. There was initially a lawsuit filed by the same attorney, a negligence lawsuit against the seal bag. He alleged that Wilson had opened a door that was typically kept locked and fallen to her death. The outside of the door looked just like a door to a washroom. So he lost that lawsuit. I'm not sure why. I think it sounds pretty interesting, Mm -hmm. but he lost it. Later, he comes back again and he files a lawsuit against Denhart. And that was in July of 37, right before Denhart was slain. So he switches his tack and he says that Denhart battered, bruised her, and she fell to her death. Okay. Mm. So this same attorney has given you two different lawsuits. Mm. The last one was against Henry Denhart. And let's face it, Denhart was the man everybody loved to hate. Yeah. Uh, he did hang out at the sealback. That was one of his watering holes because a lot of politicos hung out there too. So it was easy to point the finger at Henry and say, well, he was there, so maybe he was involved in this. I don't know what this attorney's objective was. I, it's possible he was trying to get a settlement. Mm-hmm. The Denhart was about to be tried for the second time over in Henry County, and he might have said, I just want this out of the way. I don't want to deal with this. Let's settle this. But of course, he was killed before we found out the truth about the Wilson case. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to know more about Tricia Wilson, there was a <laughs> wonderful 
article in Leo Magazine. Have you heard of Leo Magazine? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In October of 2018, a local historian and author named Lisa Pisterman, very nice lady, she wrote an excellent article, did a deep dive into the background on Patricia Wilson and looks at all the ins and outs of this. So if you can get an article, or if you can get this article, I think you'll be pleased to read it if you want to know more about Patricia Wilson. Thank you. I'm definitely going to do that. <laughs> part, of, part of me uh, thought that it would be, if he did have anything to do with it, it could be a, the Chester Wolfhook angle could be projection. He's saying, well, you're involved with Chester because he was actually involved with somebody. So a lot of times in if a person has narcissism, they will project their own behavior onto the person that they're with. But anyway, not him not having anything to do with it. That's just something I was thinking is, I wonder if he was so jealous of Chester because he was actually had a side girlfriend as well. It's possible. Yeah. You're right. They will project behavior of their own. One of my favorite quotes from Henry, you know, he wanted the venue changed out of Henry County for that uh, initial trial. And he declared that it would be the greatest injustice in, in Kentucky history if the venue wasn't moved. And, you know, it's one of those roll your eyes kind yes. of quotes. A narcissist. <laughs> My favorite Henry quote, I circled it on page 139. This is how I knew this memorandum was just bunk. Is he said, quote, next to God, you're the best man that ever existed. <laughs> Oh, according oh. to Verna said that to him, according to him, I was like, honey, honey, no, no. Now I know you're <laughs> lying. It's <laughs> not what she said. When you read that memorandum, you have to kind of ferret out stuff like that. Yeah. From what's true. Yeah. And I read it, reread it, reread it, kept trying to say, well, this is just ridiculous. She Okay, well, let's let's move on to talking about poor Henry. I don't know about poor Henry, but Henry's fate. <laughs> He, he ended up being shot to death by two of Verna's brothers, the Gar brothers, the night before his second trial was set to begin. So the circumstances surrounding his murder were also very controversial. It, it, some believe the brothers were premeditated in seeking him out, while others think it was really a chance encounter that went terribly awry. Some believe the brothers' claim of self-defense, while others labeled it an honor killing. Where do you fall on this? Because reading it, I thought this is very, very, very very convenient. It's hard. Truly, they had a motive, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. They had a very clear-cut motive. They did not want him to talk again at that second trial. No. But he had been making veiled and not so veiled threats that he was going to take the gloves off this yeah. time. Yeah. And probably he was going to say things about Chester and about Verna and about that relationship. Mm -hmm. So they did have a motive. However, you know, if you want to say that they did it purposely, you also have to say that a number of people perjured themselves, mm -hmm. among them kin solving. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't prepared to go there. Mm -hmm. I'm not prepared to look at, to listen to hearsay, which was all I had to go on, mm -hmm. that a relative told me or that I had always heard and put that up against sworn testimony. And I, I wasn't prepared to do that. Yeah. Anyway, that's why I could never say definitively that, yes, they came to town to kill him. And if you go out at the corner of 6th and Main on a night, even today, that, you know, with better lighting, it's still a wee bit shadowy. Yeah, it is. 
Yeah. Mm. And that's the one that was I, tough for me is, is to say whether they did this on purpose or not. Well, here to me, the problem was when Denhart was charging to get to the door of the Armstrong and Jack and Doc were here, it was Roy. I'm yeah, sorry. it wasn't Jack. Jack was in the car. Yeah. And Denhart was charging toward them. Yes, they could have been in fear of their lives. Okay. It was when Roy got behind him as, as Denhart got closer to the door and started shooting that it became something different from self-defense. Mm -hmm. And I've been told that the door to the Armstrong had opened inward. He might have made it inside, but he had to stop to try to open the door. Ah, uh, mm -hmm. okay. Wow. So a few different times now, we've mentioned that your finding of this 33-page memorandum really impacted your research and writing process because, I'm not sure if we've said this, you already had your manuscript in the hands of your editor when that came to light. So you've mentioned a few things such as having to sift through and you know try to sort truth from Henry's perspective, but what were some other ways that that memorandum affected your your, your thinking or your book? For example, what was one of the most significant findings that came from it? The most significant finding of that memorandum for me is that it confirmed what I had already alluded to in my manuscript, and that was that Henry believed there was a relationship. Now, I remember when I told my editor about this, she looked at it and she she said, Anne, this is like throwing a bowling ball in a koi pond. <laughs> and, you know, I said, oh, no, this this won't be this won't take long. This is this is no big deal. Well, I ended up putting a, an added chapter in there specifically on that memorandum. It was that important. It was important for me to know more about this guy's state of mind. He was not the same person he had been, say, 20 years before. Mm -hmm. And I thought with the memorandum, you could kind of see a deterioration mm -hmm. in who he was from earlier writings and speeches. Mm -hmm. So that memorandum was, was very, very important. And it did cause me to have to rewrite the manuscript. Wow. Mm -hmm. Just a comment that's something again that I enjoyed so much about your book was you did seem to have this perspective that a lot of authors don't have when they're researching because you were able to read so many personal documents like you were reading letters from Berna herself as you said you were literally getting to go into the mind of Henry Denhard and you were able to track the deterioration of his thinking because at one point in the book I remember noticing the word madness and thinking mm -hmm. are, are we looking at dementia are we looking at Alzheimer's? You know, those types of things. Yes. So I appreciated how you kept your very objective stance, but you were able to still share with us all of those things you were seeing through these works. That was fascinating. I think it's because I had started out with that determination to stand in the middle mm -hmm. and to observe, take in the evidence, but not to assume he was guilty. That would be too easy to do. Mm -hmm. Well, one last question. Why do you think John Barry protected Henry's documents all those years and never, ever seemed to waver in his belief that Henry was innocent? You know, I've always thought that Henry liked and respected John Barry. And John Barry liked and respected Denhart. They seemed to have that kind of a relationship. 
Now, with those documents, I think probably John Barry was being a good lawyer. We, you know, we don't throw anything away. Mm -hmm. If we have paperwork from the trial, it goes into a steel cabinet or something. I think that those documents had just been in there for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, that that was a very painful time for, for John Barry because he lost a client. They were going back for a second trial. Right on the cusp of that, he loses his client. So I think that he stored those documents away, maybe tried to forget about a painful time. Now, if you want to see them in person, they're at the Filson Historical Society in the John Barry Collection mm -hmm. today. Fascinating. Uh, I looked at them. They were in the drawers over at Henry County, but they are now in Louisville at the Filson. So that infamous memorandum is in there too. <laughs> Due to Henry's murder, the question of how Verna died has remained unanswered all of these years. And one of our favorite parts of the book is when you weighed in when, with your own opinions, you mm -hmm. share you believe Verna was murdered, but question whether it could have occurred the way the prosecutor proposed. In your book, you share a theory of how it could have occurred with the help of an accomplice, which I will personally say I completely agree with you. But we want to say we encourage the listeners to read the book and hear exactly how you think it happened because it's fascinating. But aside from that, can you tell us a little bit more about the man you believe might have had a motive to join him as an accomplice in the murder, even if you don't want to share his name? There was a man that kept appearing in my research. Yeah. And he went back with Henry Denhart as far as actually being a part of his military unit. Mm -hmm. So I asked military records to pull his military records. And they told me they were the oddest records they had ever seen, that this guy might decide to drill, and he might decide he didn't want to drill. He might not show up. Yet he was promoted by Denhart. Mm -hmm. So there was a relationship there, and he definitely owed Denhart. Mm -hmm. He comes back when Denhart invaded Harlan when he went over there on a political mission to pull the uh, voting boxes, if you remember yeah. that. Yeah. This guy was his spokesperson. So he had graduated now from being in his military group to being his spokesperson. He shows up again down at the Brown Hotel. He was specifically told to stay away from Denhart. Just before Denhart was indicted, he shows up at the Brown Hotel where Denhart was staying. I found his name on a witness list. He was never called as a witness. After Denhard dies, he ends up in Frankfurt, and uh, Rhodes Myers is lieutenant governor, and he's an aide. Mm. So this this guy was so suspicious to me all through the story. He kept popping up, and it also appeared that there was a relationship and that he owed Denhard for where he was. Was he also a Mason? Because I know you talk about Denhard being a Mason. Could they have been in a brotherhood together, and that could have been part of it as well? I didn't find any evidence that he was a Mason. Okay. No. Mm -hmm. So I also personally believe your accomplice theory, but I feel compelled to ask this question just to be safe. Mm -hmm. So much was made of that second shot. But when you read your book, George Baker's the only person who really said that he heard it. Nettie mm -hmm. definitely did not hear it, his wife. And mm -hmm. the way it was portrayed in the book, when George mentions it to Henry, Henry acts so funny, talks about it being fearful or fearsome, something like that. I wondered if he actually had heard it either. You also talk a lot about how the different parties who were involved would give such differing 
answers. Five different people were asked how far Verna's body was from the side of the road. And their answers uh-huh. ranged from eight feet to like 25 to 30. So details would be so far off that it made me wonder if we were to discount the second shot, would that change your opinion as to whether or not Henry could have murdered her? Like, let's pretend it was backfire from a car or or it just it wasn't there at all. If we'd eliminated that totally. Of course, I think the second shot might have been a signal shot. Mm-hmm. Okay. It yes. was from the point on, he knew she was dead. Now, the prosecution went down a rabbit hole with this whole fountain pen gun thing Mm -hmm. and got pretty much embarrassed in court on Mm -hmm. it. It was real red herring. Mm -hmm. But I've always viewed that second shot. Of course, it was not, the second shot sounded a lot different than the first shot with that big heavy gun. Mm-hmm. But I've always wondered if that wasn't the signal. I agree. I'm totally on the inside. <laughs> Second shot doesn't matter. <laughs> the, the, uh, the way she lays out, again, read this book because we're not going to spoil her way she lays it out. But I'm telling you, I read it and my I was getting goosebumps on, goosebumps on my legs. It's like, yes, she has got it. This is exactly the way I picture it going down. Absolutely. All of that was done with a lot of pacing mm-hmm. in my house. Mm-hmm. A lot of late nights up where I couldn't sleep. It just uh, makes the most sense. It just just fascinated me. You know, it just kept me awake the whole thing. Many nights trying to figure out what had happened and also knowing I can't have all the answers. Sure. But I think that I try. I think with everything that we've been presented, I would say that you have solved the mystery. Mm -hmm. To me, in in my opinion, I think what you lay out happening, I think this was a case given to you and you have figured it out. You have investigated Mm -hmm. it and you've come to the most logical, correct answer. Which was so satisfying. I've certainly tried. Thank you. So one question that we have is Verna was found with a torn slip and a bruise on her inner thigh. How do you think that that may have occurred? I see the torn slip with a struggle that took place in the ditch. I don't think he went gently into that dark night. No, I don't think so either. I think she was in a fight for her life. So I think that's where, you know, the clothes might have been torn or roughed up or something. I also think she was probably pushed down into that ditch. So Anne, in the acknowledgments of your book, you explain the circumstances that led to the photograph that is on the front of your book. Could you share that with our listeners? Well, first of all, let me say you don't believe something like that until it happens to you. Mm-hmm. It was going to be 79 years to the day that Verna died. I believe it was November the 6th, 2015. It was right before my book was published the year before. Since that also landed on a Friday, so it was going to be 79 years to the day, it was my editor who had the idea of getting a photographer to go out there and take pictures. She said, do you know a photographer? I said, yeah, I do. I know someone who is taking family pictures, and she's pretty willing to do most anything you ask her to do as far as pictures are concerned. So she did go out there with me. Now, we were there between five and six because that's the lighting that I had asked her for. And people were coming home from work. And you know, if you're familiar with that stretch of highway, it's busier now than it was in 1936. So Mm -hmm. it was my job to keep her from getting hit by a car. So she was shooting in front of George Baker's house and she had set up a tripod in the middle of the road and was shooting up the road in the direction that Verna would have walked. 
And I kept watching for cars and I would pull her off the road. And this went on until dark. And then she, we packed up and left. And there was no one out there but us, just cars that would pass. And that, that was it. So a week later, she said, you, you need to come see these pictures. And I so I went into her studio in Louisville. She took 50 to 100 photographs all in that same direction. And in two or three of them, this outline of a figure in the road shows up. Now, what Vivian didn't know, but that I knew when I saw that was that was right in the area above where the body was found in the ditch. Mm-hmm. Only I knew that. Vivian didn't know. Mm-hmm. I can tell you when I saw it, I just felt like I'd been hit in the stomach with something. It just completely shocked me. But I came to view it as a gift. Mm -hmm. And I remember I took the picture and I showed it to Verna's granddaughters. And uh, I wanted them to see this before I went forward with perhaps having it as a cover of the book. And uh, one of them said, well, I guess she approves. So I love that. Is it your thinking that it might be her? Or do you think it's a male or female figure? Because I'm looking at it and I can't quite tell. It's a female. It's a female. Okay. It's a female. Where it is in the on the road and everything kind of looks like there's a dress or a coat or something. Mm-hmm. So if it had been Denhart, it would have looked like a large blogger. But uh, I viewed it as a gift. Mm-hmm. Eventually it did become the cover. Yeah, it's a very compelling cover. I love that the granddaughters reacted that way, mm-hmm. that that was... Because I, that's how I like to interpret it too, that that was a sign of approval and kind of a, a comforting thing, liking the fact that you're trying to shed light on something that's, as Ashley said, solving the mystery, mm-hmm. you know, that's gone all these years being unsolved and people have forgotten about it. I, I like that. That's a beautiful story. Well, I like to believe perhaps she's pleased because I really tried hard to show this couldn't have been a suicide. Yeah. You cleared yes, her name. I cleared her name armchair psychologist i think that brings us to the armchair segment and there were so many ideas and themes that resonated i know with ashley and myself again because we, we kept talking about this and i'm sure being the person who who lived this for all these years mm-hmm. there are, there's a lot resonating with you too i'm just going to ask that each of us share one thing just one idea something that just spoke to us Katie, do you want to go first yes i will so the thought that resonates with me i mean there's so many but the one i'm going to choose actually piggybacks exactly on what ann just said i was so empathetic to Verna this in the entire time I was reading your book I had so much admiration for this incredibly strong woman of character mm-hmm. who had not only her life stolen but her reputation because Henry was controlling the narrative she was, you know, he could say anything he wanted and very few people or very few pieces of evidence could dispute the things he was saying. So one of the pieces, the the ideas that just absolutely, ooh, you know, went to my core was the injustice. I totally believe Henry was responsible for her death. The injustice mm-hmm. of not only murdering her, but also then trying to steal her character and her reputation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I'll go second because I want Anne to be the one that closes this out. For me, what I came came away with is 
I wonder if this had happened today, if this same crime had happened today with the knowledge that we do have of narcissism and of domestic violence, would we have approached it differently? Would we have immediately recognized this memo is the ramblings of a narcissistic, a malignant narcissist? Would we have seen projection? And I wonder how much that could have helped her back then. Because to me, I've done a lot of studying about narcissism because of other things that I've written and it just was so obvious, you know? it was like this shining light of obviousness. And I wonder if that's what my, I don't have an answer for it. I just wonder what would have been the difference between then versus now had the crime occurred with everything we do know psychologically about personalities. So that's what I came away with. Or in our modern world, despite the fact that he was clearly narcissistic, mm -hmm. do do trial lawyers still have the ability or, you know, to spin things and, or does a person's power keep the, the narcissism hidden because nobody was willing to speak out against Henry until after he was dead. Mm -mm. So. I didn't understand how he had so many friends. He had so many friends from so long ago, like 30 year friends. I mean, obviously everybody is complex. Even, even narcissists have good qualities. They, there's things that they do well. So it made me want to go, what do you guys see in Henry, unless it is the person he was 30 years ago, is so much <laughs> different than the person he is now. And they're still <laughs> clinging to the person they knew 30 years ago. We had a good grasp of Verna's personality. She was this way. But Henry, in all of his, his mental complexities, he intrigued me like, what, where did you get these friends? Where did you get a lawyer who believes in your innocence no matter what? Like, what am I missing about you, Henry? So that's that's another question I had. Just reading it, just my own personal hmm, thinkings. You know, if you want to call him the villain, I thought he was a wonderful villain, mm -hmm. just the perfect villain. Mm -hmm. You know, when you hear him talk, he is like someone from the 19th century. He's very courtly. And reading the transcript and hearing him speak, it's like one from the 19th century speaking, very polite, very, very courtly is the way I would describe it. But there's an underlying menace here, mm -hmm. and you don't cross this guy. Mm -hmm. And it was widely known that when he was drinking, he was a mean drunk. Mm -hmm. How do you feel then, Anne, after completing this, after spending <laughs> six years of your life, did it feel like a weight was off of you when you finished it? Or what is what do you come away from it now? Do you feel like it's going to be a lifelong kind of assignment to continue mm -hmm. to talk about them and to continue clearing her name or just your thoughts and feelings? I'm always glad to talk about this case mm -hmm. and about my characters. They came to be a part of me. Mm -hmm. So they always will be. And I'll always be looking for clues here and there, trying to find out more about them. So that's one reason the transcript meant so much to me, because I could hear their words. I could almost hear their voices speaking the words. It, it meant a lot to me. And so uh, anyway, I'll, I'll always be out here with with the story and my characters. And so I'm always glad to get an invitation like this morning. Well, we can't thank you enough for talking with us. We loved your book. And then mm -hmm. what a delight to have the opportunity to actually, you know, sit here and bounce these ideas around with the author mm -hmm. of this work and, and to have mm -hmm. you share all of your insights. It's just been wonderful. Thank you so much. The pleasure has been mine. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. And like I say, I love to talk about this subject. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. 
If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the hosts during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.